welcome back everybody you are listening to that's so fringy podcast and we are here today with vicki joy anderson she is an author and a speaker she's appeared as a guest on lots of podcasts she's written lots of books both fiction and non-fiction her last one being uh, a book called they only come out at night exposing the dark weapon of sleep paralysis she is a wealth of knowledge like super brain way bigger of a brain than I've ever had she is brilliant and we were so thankful that she was willing to come on and talk with us we have to preface with a little bit of um, housekeeping so uh, the midsection of the interview the audio was not working and so while we got to hear what she had to say you guys don't get to hear what she had to say and and a lot of that was her explaining the sleep paralysis piece um, so if you want to know more about that, you'll have to get her book. I'm, I'm just going to plug that because it's an amazing, amazing read. Tricky, tricky. See what I did there? Um, but we did get a lot of information on, on a variety of subjects. So check out her website. I know her book is only available on L.A. Marzulli's website, which she goes over later on in the show. But um, we hope that you guys enjoy the interview as much as we did because she is an absolute wealth of knowledge. So saddle up. Here comes Vicki Joy Anderson. All right, you guys. So we're here with Vicki Joy Anderson. Thank you so much for coming on to That's So Fringy podcast. We really, really uh, enjoy the message that you're putting out there. And so we wanted to just have you on and and talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, uh, your book that you just released and uh, and how you got to the point of wanting to release a book like that. Um, what's what's your background in sleep paralysis? Because that's what your book's about. Yeah. Yep. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, well, I never planned on writing a book about it, uh, but my my research, if you will, started around three years old when it just started happening to me. And it happened on a consistent, almost nightly basis uh, off and on until I was 40. And I would say in the last 10 years, I have not experienced the classic sleep paralysis scenario anymore, uh, but there are still many sort of nocturnal, astral, metaverse, if you will, sorts of, of dreaming going on, which I actually think is trending with with a lot of people. The, the classic sleep paralysis experience does tend to be kind of going away for a lot of people. It's, it's in a new iteration. Um, it's a far more quantum slash technological phase now than I would say in the past, it was more horror genre. And now it's a little mm. bit more sci-fi. So I think there's a, there is that kind of a lean that we're seeing with AI, um, all kinds of technology, um, where there is this kind of back and forth between what is AI and, and how, um, can, can it be trusted and, and how far can it go? You know, those type of things. And we get into the demonic 
discussion where you're like wondering, you know, how much of this is going to take over and how much um, are we giving of ourselves um, in that way? And what do you think it is the, why do you think it is changing like that? I think that we are in a new era of disclosure. They don't want to stay in chapter one forever, that the story Mm -hmm. has to progress. And so we're just further down the line in the story. And so I think that they've spent the last 40, 50 years deluging us with science fiction terminology. And we now have categories in our brain for quantum level and scientific and technological information and concepts that we did not have, our parents didn't have when when they were young. And the media, especially music, books, literature, comics, video games, television, movies, they have really been a school of propaganda, I think, preparing us to understand the language so that when this was disclosed, not only would we understand what they were talking about, but we would be out of the realms of fiction and into the realms of believing that this stuff is true and is possible. And I think that we are we're very much to that point. There's there's still skeptics. There's still a lot of people with cognitive dissonance who hear these things and maybe deep down on some level they do believe it, but they're too frightened to sort of get into the the depths of what it would mean if it really was. And so there's a an outward denial of it. But I do think that culturally we have been properly prepped and and brainwashed, so to speak, into thinking this is the wave of the future, you know. I remember being a teenager and seeing the first Terminator movie in the movie theater. At that time, in my mind, never in a million years at that time did I think that this was some sort of predictive programming or that this was some sort of agenda that they were working towards. This was just the most fantastically creative story about these uh, transhuman robot-like human beings coming back to save the world. I mean, it had a very much had a messianic message to it, you know, John Connor being the Messiah. Uh, But even that, um, now we see, see that and we don't think anymore like, wow, what a creative mind that thought of such a wild story. We see now baked into that story the entire anti-gospel. We see, you know, the anti-Diluvian gospel of the Watchers and that. And, you know, I hadn't followed the Terminator franchise for years and years and years. And several years ago, I'm not even sure which one it was. I I went to one of the movies because I had a client. I was working with kids with uh, teenagers and stuff with special needs, and he really wanted to see this movie. So I took him. And the gist of what happened is now it was John Connor's daughter, and she ended up trusting the, the, the Terminator character to the point now where when he told her that John Connor was actually the Antichrist and he'd been the bad guy all along and now we got to kill him, I had an instant red pill moment there where I realized they have actually been preparing us for 30 years to, to get attached to this storyline and attached to the characters and to feel the betrayal of that symbol 
of John Connor, this, this, this person who we've been taught our whole lives was the Messiah, the savior. And then we find out he's not the real guy, the, who we thought was the bad guy. See that bait and switch. And these stories, these movies, these are allegories. These are occult blinds to use the literary term. They are telling stories through metaphor, through allegory, through symbol. And when the culture gets to a point where they can handle the disclosure without losing their minds, quite literally, to, to say it in the H.P. Lovecraft sense, um, the, as we are drawn into this new dark age, as, as he explains in Cthulhu, they're bringing us to this moment where when they reveal the symbols, uh, we are told who the John Connors really are and who, and who the, the Terminators really are, that we will embrace the characters behind the symbols because we have been drawn in by the story for decades. It's become our gospel. Film has become the gospel of, of our generation. And so when these symbols are explained, how they are allegorically going to translate in the spiritual realm is that Jesus was the imposter all along. And we must embrace the, the technological uh, Terminator slash, you know, robotic version of the Savior that's going to come and not rescue us from our sin, but rec rescue us from the decay of the physical, because there is going to be an eternal life offered by that Messiah that is not a, a spiritual eternal life, but it, it's a, a material it's a material eternal life, which we know because we've read the end of the book. We know that that, that salvation will be very limited. Uh, that salvation will be enjoyed by the partakers of it until Jesus comes back and puts, puts an end to the game. Yeah, I really appreciate you walking us through that because it is so blatantly clear when you when you do you know go into it and and actually put the the Bible as your guide and say you know what is it that they're trying to tell us here and how are they trying to guide us because you know we we all know if we've read the Bible that that it says that we will be deceived even the elect you know and and we have to you know be very careful um what we're falling for and you know with media and um technology and all those things we have the ability to um to be guided in that way if that makes sense so what we've been doing on our podcast is um trying to start people that that may not have a background in a lot of this stuff starting from the beginning and how did we how did we get here how did we get to this place and so we started all the way back uh in genesis 6 you know we talked about the watchers and we talked about all of those things and then we transitioned and started talking about who are they you know because a lot of times when you're talking about this stuff you're saying they are doing this or they are doing this. And a lot of the thing, the kickback you get from people that may not believe or may not understand um, is who are they? And so we kind of laid those things out with secret societies. And we did a couple of CIA projects, um, Mockingbird and, um, you know, 
paperclip and those type of things. So just kind of laying the foundation and the groundwork for for what we're dealing with with the the evil in our world and how it affects us. And what is it that's what is it that's coming at you during the sleep paralysis stuff, like specifically? I'm going to go through three phases. I'm going to tell you who they were uh, in antediluvian times who they have been for the last, you know, hundred so years here and who I think they will be going forward. There is a baton, so to speak, being passed from epoch to epoch. It's not, the underlying they is the same, but the, the dupes and the thralls that are carrying it out are not necessarily the same all throughout time. And that's why I think they is actually a more appropriate word than we might think, because, you know, Christianity tends to want to reduce all of evil down to one big bad guy, you know, with the cape and the horns. And uh, the fact of the matter is there is an army of of thralls in in his uh, command, and it's not the same people all doing the same thing at the same time. So in antediluvian times, if you go all the way back to the gods and the goddesses and the demigods and the Nephilim and the demons, whatever um, word you want to ascribe to them. Um, They were of the Lamashtu class. And this comes from the Sumerian, the Akkadian and the Assyrian and the Babylonian tablets. This goes all the way back to Epic of Gilgamesh and prior the Lamashtu gods and goddesses Uh, they're primarily female iterations, but there are male as well. Um, I believe the Lilitu and perhaps the Lamia are the male iterations. Don't quote me on that. Most of them are female, but the Lamashtu class of demons are nighttime stalking vampiric entities. Mm-hmm. This is the foundation of our modern, glamorized, romanticized, scrubbed up Hollywood versions of the vampire. But if you take the fictional vampire lore and you trace it all the way back to its origins, you're going to get these uh, Lamashtu demons. And depending on the culture, there are dozens of names for these entities, but it's the same entity. It's the same class of entity. So depending on whether you're going back to the Greek or the Akkadian or the Sumerian or the Babylonian or the Roman, you're going to get anything from Lamashtu, Lamia, Lalitu. Uh, the, the Judaic is, of course, the Lilith, and that goes into the screech owl language of scripture. Um, a lot of these beings uh, coexist with the desert demons, which is why you get a lot of desert types of of terminology like when you cast out a demon it goes back to the dry arid places this is all going back to the Lamashtu and they are the original iterations of the demonic uh, uh, vampiric rather entities and so in in antediluvian times and in antiquity the Lamia or the Lamashtu this was a female entity that would hover at the threshold of, of your home at night. And it, if it could get entrance into your home, it would attack the babies. So this was their explanation of crib death and SIDS. 
If a baby was found dead in its crib, it was the Lamia, it was the Lamashu. Mm. Um, but it also attacked pregnant women, breastfeeding women. Um, it would attack, uh, it would be the, like the, the explanation for miscarriages, for stillborn babies. Um, but she wasn't just the goddess of, of death. She was the, the goddess of sex, the goddess of, of uh, um, pornography, uh, the goddess of, of all of these sorts of things, but very much a murderous woman as well. And you can kind of go into the lore of um, Inanna, um, and that also goes back to the epics. And Inanna, it was also known as the Queen of Heaven. So when you see references in the Old Testament to the Queen of Heaven and how they were making cakes to the Queen of Heaven, this is um, Inanna. Uh, she goes by a million different names, Ishtar, Astarte, Easter. And this is where we get the whole... Uh, Babylonianized Christian holiday of Easter that there's many, many tentacles of, you know, we make the cakes, you know, you've got the hot cross buns and that X, mm -hmm. you know, we, they say, Oh, it's a cross. It's actually an X, which goes back to the symbol of Saturn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at risk of going wildly off course, these vampiric demoness goddesses were vampiric. They sought prey and there was blood drinking involved, but the blood drinking is more of a reference in modernity to the sucking of the life force or the soul or the energy. Mm -hmm. um, so when you start talking about succubuses, which are the, like the modern version of the, these Lamashtu entities, um, you're not going to get in, in modernity, you're not going to get people found dead in their bed with two holes in the neck and blood and mm -hmm. all this. You're going to get um, a a slow drain of the life force. And people who have these succubus encounters on a frequent basis, they'll they'll talk about um, being exhausted for days after. And this is why so many people, if you really study sleep paralysis, and this is why medicine and psychology has sort of owned the narrative on sleep paralysis for so many years because the long-term effect of these succubus encounters is that people become insomniacs and they start experiencing all of the side effects of insomnia and sleep depriva deprivation. Uh, because of that, it leads to symptoms that very much mimic mental illness as anyone with a foxhole type of a sleep uh, deprivation issue would have. And a lot of this ties back to the fact that these are vampiric entities that drain the life force. And so what started out as, as probably literal entities that would stalk the thresholds and, and kill people through time as they had to become more covert, it, it transferred into, um, the worship of these entities, and they had to kind of go undercover. Uh, if you look at just the whole story of, of the Great Flood, when, when the Watchers were punished, they were punished for leaving their first estate and interacting directly with mankind. So obviously, when they were all wiped off the map, the, the entities that, were, that, that had not come down the mountain they, they were faced with the problem. How do we continue our agenda 
of teaching the the worthless mysteries of heaven to mankind? How do we continue to propagate this this information that leads to war and sex and adultery and fornication and perversion and of the pharmakia and and all of these things that they they were teaching mankind? How do we continue this transformational mind control program from where we're at because we know if we go down to earth and we mingle with them directly the same will happen to us that happened to the the first cast of characters so after the flood they had to come up with a different way of re-educating mankind and um the way that they did this was well if we can't come to you you can come to us and this is where the sleep paralysis this is where uh, the Asclepions in the first and second century came in. This was the god Asclepius, the serpent god of healing. Uh, he would bring people into his his healing temples, these Asclepions. They would be heavily sedated. It was probably something likened unto ayahuasca. They would probably mm-hmm. drink something. In Zoroastrianism, it's called something else. It's like Heora or, or something like that, which interestingly is etymologically linked to the word soma, which we see in Brave New World. Soma was the drink that they drank to stay mind controlled. So this is all, this isn't fiction. This is all going back to actual um, real things. And so um, in in the healing temples of Asclepion, they'd be heavily sedated. They would separate from their bodies. They would astral project. They would dream a cure. They would go into the heavenly realms and they would speak with, ascended masters or spirit guides. They'd be given real information about the cure. They would come back to consciousness. They would tell the high priests slash physicians, um, hey, you got to cut this artery or you got to remove this thing or whatever. And they would be healed, which again, this is the smoke and mirrors of them now looking like healing gods. They look, in fact, the very word great physician that we attribute to Jesus Christ, which is never found in scripture, uh, the healing God, the name of the healing God in scripture is uh, Jehovah Rapha, uh, God, our healer. Uh, the word great physician or the divine physician, that was the name of Asclepius, the, the serpent God of healing. And <clears throat> we still see his rod of Asclepius all over our medical facilities and ambulances, the, yeah, the one yeah, snake yeah. entwined up yep. the rod. Yep. <clears throat> So it, it goes on and on and on. And so in, in modern lore now, we've turned them in, into vampires and they're romantic and they're brooding and they're sexy. And you know, the, the encounters that you have with these incubuses are, are exciting and wonderful. And they have completely flipped the narrative on the head because they have to appeal to our generation now. And our generation has no fear of these things. Our generation doesn't have shame or fear of promiscuity anymore. We're proud of it. it it's mm-hmm. everywhere. It's in the church. It's 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 so overt now. And so these incubuses and succubuses are now uh, romanticized, and Hollywood um, builds them up in both comical and in dramatic ways. You know, you've got you know the Salem's Lots, but you've also got the silliness, like the Twilight. You know, where now we're indoctrinating. Mm-hmm a young generation of fatherless girls who have this this idea that a demonic stalker who wants to drink their blood is somehow equated to the uh, protection of, of a man who's going to follow them up to the ends of eternity to be with them. And you see how they're, they're, <clears throat> they're turning this demonic 
reality into a romance novel for for the women. It says in in the New Testament that women who who let these men into their homes and are easily duped. And this is one of the ways, like the television and the dream world and uh, how all of this stuff, it's so intertwines with one another and the direction that we're headed. And this is why I said at the top of the show, how we're, we're, we're moving from horror movie into sci-fi genres with this, that we're even in the sleep paralysis and in astral projection, it's going from astral realm to metaverse. It's going from shadow people to cyborgs and uh, people are not having the same experiences. You mesh all of that together with film and media, with video games, with interactive video games, with VR. And what you've got now is an inability to distinguish the fantasy world from from the reality world. And when you start introducing uh, psychedelics, mushrooms, DMT, ayahuasca into it, where someone comes back from a 10-minute trip and they've lived a 60-year lifetime in that trip, uh, now you see that it's paving the way for reincarnation. Because people having that emotional of an experience aren't going to just say that was just an illusion. That was just a dream. They're going to say that was a past life. That was too meaningful for me to just throw away. And so it's paving the way for uh, these new age concepts, which are not new at all. And um, uh, I'll just throw this in here too, for people. Um, This is coming down the line. Um, Now ayahuasca is kind of giving birth to this interest in having these forced spiritual communications through um, the disconnect of the soul from the body and these these uh, altered states of consciousness, which obviously does open the third eye. It does uh, facilitate Kundalini awakenings, etc. But now they have this thing um, with the psychonauts, and it's not the traditional definition of the psychonauts. Um, and this is a combination of uh, psychotropic medication, psychedelics, and... Um, travel like astronaut and what they're developing now and this is total recall um so again predictive programming in in this film that you would have just thought was from the creative mind of a fiction writer they're now developing actual facilities that you can go to and under the monetization of professionals who are are keeping track of your heart rates and things they have a way now of of uh doing dmt drips or infusions uh, and where they'll hook you up and they'll slow drip DNT into you so that your trip can last for days or weeks, I guess, depending upon how much money you're willing to shell out. And so what, what, where we are headed is the same thing that happened to Satan, the same thing that happened to the 200 watchers. We're being offered the opportunity to leave our first estate. Our first estate is the physical plane. We're terrestrial. And we always will be terrestrial. Jesus Christ went into the form of a human body. And when he presents himself on the day of resurrection, he will still be in that human body. The reason he can be our mediator for all of eternity is because he is the high priest for the human race. And he will present himself in eternity before the throne as a terrestrial being, though he is God, but he's going to be in our form. Our resurrection bodies will be bodies. This isn't Pleiades Jesus. We're not going to be cosmonauts. This isn't this uh, sonata, the great master Jesus of the theosophical astral realm, this uh, Anunnaki progenitors, all of this stuff that Gaia.com is trying to get us to believe. 
Well, I really appreciate you breaking all that down for us. It really helps, you know, the listener to to categorize all of the the things that we hear in church or that we're seeing even in, you know, the news and and what's coming because there is this rage where you to live in the metaverse is is more appealing to a lot of children and we have children, you know, and they they like to spend a lot of time um, you know, we have one in one room and one in another room and they're they're talking to each other, playing, playing back and forth together in two yeah. separate rooms. I'm like, why don't you just sit down and play in the same room? <laughs> have a conversation. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so they you know, this the idea of being in um, virtual reality is much more palatable to them because uh, they've kind of grown up with cell phones and and televisions and all of those things and it becomes almost um too scary to be in uh in the presence of another human being and they have all of this anxiety and all these things and instead of learning to to deal with those anxieties and and learning how to be human they decide not to because it's it's too hard yeah. And so they've made it too easy for for us to just get lost in in that. And, and in doing that, we we are really losing ourselves, as you say. Absolutely. And as as people who are created in the image of God, what's the tipping point? And this is the thing that I'm always kind of searching out, not only in my research, but even in my own heart. What what is the tipping point where that's the line drawn in the sand and we as Christians say, I can't go any further. This is where I have to be left behind, so to speak, in as, as technology and things progress beyond us. Uh, because the well, I'll give you a small example. Uh, there's all of these little apps that are just out there for fun, right? Where you upload your picture and it turns you into an avatar or it turns you into a superhero or it it just has a filter Mm -hmm. that removes all your blemishes. And, you know, that stuff didn't appeal to me 20 years ago. I thought, well, this is silly. Why do I want to look like a cartoon character? But now as I'm entering middle age and I get up and my mirror doesn't reflect the same thing it did when I was 20, I see like, oh, wow. Um, if, if we live our whole lives behind closed doors, we're not interacting with other human beings and our only presence and the only reality of who we are, our identity is what people see on the screen. And I have this little filter. I just press a button and all of a sudden I look young and beautiful again and my wrinkles are gone and my gray hairs are gone and my, you know, my double chin is gone. Um, even for a Christian who's not vain, it's very tempting to... To even just look at ourselves like that and think like, oh man, I kind of wish I looked like that. It just starts as just the, a glimmer of, of a little fantasy, right? But then that stuff becomes addicting, especially then as our followers, you know, we used to have friends and family. Now we have followers. As our followers begin to associate that image with our identity, we now have to adopt that. And so I just think that where is the tipping point between all of this technology and growing old and, and this avatar, at what point will we cease to exist and we hand over the baton of our life to our avatar? It's got our conscience, 
our memories, our feelings, our beliefs, like the only thing we're doing is fill in the blank, right? And this is where the transhumanism stuff gets really dicey because um, for for decades, we as Christians will go in for heart surgery, we'll get a pacemaker put in, we, we, you know, we'll, we'll put a loved one in a coma without pulling the plug. Like there's all sorts of things that we've been doing for the last hundred years in, in America, that is for the sole purpose of prolonging life. You know, so if, if someone, like, let's just theoretically say that someone from Jesus's time, let's say a first century believer came into America and, and spent a year here, they potentially could find our whole medical system to be demonic because we're prolonging people's lives. Mm -hmm. We're using technology. Like that person was supposed to die. It was the will of God that that person have a heart attack and you stopped it. Like I'm just musing that this could be in theory, how they would deal with uh, observing something that was so foreign to them. In fact, that's Jesus himself who put the, put, put a stop to death, you know, raised people from the dead. He was accused of being of, of Satan uh, they they ascribed that with witchcraft, like the will of God is being meddled with here. So as Christians, entering into an age where transhumanism and med beds are, are a reality now, what is the point of no return for us? And I don't know what it is, Rick. I mean, it scares me to contemplate it because, you know, if my dad dropped over right now, I, I'm not going to just say it's the will of God. And, you know, I mean, I would intervene. I, sure. I I would intervene. And so at what point, you know, down the line when intervention means, you know, let's download his conscience into some avatar, mm -hmm. you know, and where that gets scary is um, we don't know what's on the ingredient label of these avatars. Yeah, you can download my conscience into this avatar, but I don't know what comes like what what comes factory stock with this avatar. How do I know you haven't infused some sort of demonic entity into this as well? How you know th these are the questions that are so far out there. So um I I guess what's so still sort of a gray area for me is at what point does the technology that saves us become a technology that's actually a substitute for eternal life? And mm -hmm. will, will that line of demarcation be as cut and dry as we think it will be? Because, sure. because 30 years ago, I remember my grandpa telling me not to get one of those uh, Mark of the Beast debit cards, right? So, yes. <laughs> so yeah. what what will it be obvious to us? And to your point earlier, Rick, um, the there's a point where um, even the elect, if it were possible, will be deceived. So, if it's going to be that good of a lie, mm. and we're messing with things like transhumanism and the downloading of a human soul into some other vessel. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And it, and it doesn't seem to be that far off. I mean, with, you know, you've got Elon Musk doing a neural link and all of those things. I mean, you're, you're taking a, a, a human consciousness and giving them a, a little extra edge. Maybe they could be superhuman in some way or, 
or even going into the genetics and trying to, you know, form um, the fetus to be what what you want it to be. I want it to look this way or be this tall or, you know, they're they're doing all of these things and giving a, a rise to us, you know, this is Satan's agenda from the beginning. You could be like gods where you, you can make your decisions on, on everything in life. You know, you can choose what your babies look like. You can choose, um, you know, how you interact with the world, um, whether that be, um, you know, just in person or in the metaverse. And that is a really scary thing. It's a really scary thing to know that, we are taking so much control of of our own lives yeah. uh, and 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 we're not giving surrender which is what the bible asks us to do is is surrender our lives to god and say you are the the king you are the one that is sitting on the throne and and i'm not going to do uh this that and the other thing um because i i trust you and it really comes down to trust yeah. What do you trust? Um, and and I I put my trust in Jesus, and that's that's the only way that I would want to go. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. This whole um, differentiation between fear of death and fear of the wrath of God, and I think that we've lost sight of the fact that the reason why men fear death, uh, and by men I mean all of mankind, the reason we fear death is in large part because we'll face the wrath of God and we'll, we'll either go through that incinerator and burn up, or we'll go through that incinerator uh, like a precious metal and we'll come out pure gold. It'll burn the dross. And so um, when we, when we put on the asbestos suit of Jesus Christ, we can walk through that refining fire and we'll come out with the dross burned off. But if you go into that fire of judgment without the asbestos suit of Jesus Christ, you burn to a crisp. And I think that, a lot of people, I, I, I believe people misunderstand even the fear that Jesus felt before the cross when he was in the garden mm. and he was sweating blood and he, you know, he was terrified. And um, I, I don't think, you know, you take it or leave it, but I don't think that he was afraid of death. I don't mm. think he was afraid of the pain or, or, or of man because fear of man, he, he had instructed his disciples do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot so kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. So if Jesus is telling weak, frail, sinful human beings, do not be afraid of men who kill your body, then if Jesus is in the garden terrified of men who are about to kill his body, he, he can't expect us to do something he couldn't master himself. And so I think what he was actually afraid of is he knew that God was going to depart from him and that the full cup of the wrath of God was going to fall on him. What he was dreading there was the separation from God and enduring the wrath. And that's why he said, let this cup pass from me. A lot of people think that's just poetic language. No, literally let this cup of wrath being poured out upon me um, be taken from me. And so I think that a lot of people, uh, miss that. And if we understood that and our, and we had more of a control over our fear of death, we would not be susceptible to all of the lies of the enemy who's offering us a way out of that. 
And the reason that's appealing to us is because we are so afraid of death and the unknowns and the potential judgment that rather than seeing or appreciating or desiring the solution to it, we want the easier we want the easier solution to it. And so what's fascinating to me, and I'm going to get letters for this. Uh, I, I don't I don't often talk about this uh, because I don't want to, I'm not trying to make any sort of doctrine about, you know, uh, annihilation or anything like that. But interestingly, if you read in the scriptures, if you do a word search for all of the verses that talk about the lake of fire and the smoke of the torment of people rising forever more, forever and ever and ever. Um, it, there, there's a reference in, in Peter that talks about the angels. And um, I think it's specifically referencing those that are in the abyss now and the watchers and, and the ones mm-hmm. that left the first estate. But in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the people that are thrown into the lake of fire and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever and ever, it specifically names... Satan and his angels and all those who took the mark and worshipped the image of the beast. So as an English major and as someone very interested in writing and sentence structure and grammar and context, that would have been a great place for John to have clarified every single person who rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior from the beginning to end of time is going to go into this pit and the smoke of their torment is going to rise forever and evermore. But in that particular verse, it's Satan and his angels and all those who took the mark and who worship the image of the beast, whose torment is rising forever and ever and ever and ever. Where this potentially fits in with our discussion about transhumanism is I think a lot of Christians bank on the fact that, okay, don't listen to Satan because he makes promises he can't keep. No, it's not that he can't back up what he says. It's not that he can't give you some sort of temporary version of what he's promising you. Uh, he will give you those things. But the problem is that in the end, when you really find out what he's given you, you're going to realize that was not worth having. And the reason I think that the people who took the mark and worship the image of the beast are going to be in torment forever and ever and ever and ever is because part of that mark, part of that promise of eternal life, uh, I think they actually will receive eternal life. But when you receive eternal life in your corruptible flesh, mm. that means that that's where you're stuck for eternity. And that's why they're, they're running to and fro, like begging the mountains to fall on them and they still won't die. It's because the beast is going to offer eternal life and they're going to receive it, and they're really going to get it. So when they're thrown into a lake of fire, they're not going to incinerate. Uh, they, like Satan and his angels, because they're immortal, they're not human, they're not, they are not going to die. That is the eternal life that the enemies of God are offering people. So all of this stuff, all the way from the serpent in the garden, you can be as gods. And Everything in New Age, everything in the Ascension Doctrine and everything on Gaia.com, you, like Christ consciousness, the theosis of like, of, that's what they used to call it in, in the 18th and 19th century. It is a promise that you can be as the gods, but to people that that appeals to who, who aren't biblically read, if you understand the fate of the gods, you will not want to be as a god. 
Because in Psalm 82, God tells the gods, you will die like men. So if I become, uh, if I become like a God, guess what? I'm going to die like a man. That's, that's my inheritance. So all attempts, whether it be transhumanism, whether it be science, technology, religion, whether it be um, uh, some sort of antediluvian blood cult, you know, what, whatever you're, whoever's holding it out to you, this, this idea that you can be your own God, whether it's in some sort of metaverse or virtual reality, uh, whether like in some religions, you're going to get your own planet and you're going to, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to get your own harem, you know, whatever. All of these promises are going to end in death because if we become our own God, we will die like men. That's what Psalm 82, that Psalm 82 is the revelation of the new agers. That's your eternity. That's your Armageddon. You will become as a God. And in the end, you'll be judged like men. That's such a huge point to make, you know, and I think that it's so missed and it's it's scary that it can be um, the, the New Age doctrine and and all of this stuff can be so close. And we talk about this, uh, you know, all the time between ourselves. It's so close. It's so, um, you know, it's very easy to find yourself falling into this pit. Because it, you know, it's covered with beautiful, lush grass, you know, but once you're in that pit and you're, and you're down there, there's nothing that you can do at that point. And it's, it's, it's really saddens the heart, you know, when you think about it and, and it, and it should for, for me anyway, and, and, and in our discussions that we've had, it should make there be a, a, a type of a, urgency in in correcting that you know correcting that mindset because it you know these uh people that are following the new age philosophy they they think that they've got it figured out and they and and they don't and it's Mm -hmm. very sad and and there is an urgency because you know we we see the world crashing all around us and these um the the fore- foretellings of John in Revelation are beginning to to not be so strange anymore. You know, we're we're finding that this is actually a, a little more too close to home <laughs> at times, yeah. and uh, we have to we have to get this message out. and And, and that's why we're so glad that you've come on uh, to our mm-hmm. podcast. And the whole reason that we started the podcast was that very thing getting Mm -hmm. this message of deception out um so that we can have the knowledge um that the bible tells us to have the knowledge of the truth of jesus christ is our salvation and uh, god gives us everything that we need we just have to look for it we have to understand it and and come into the fullness of that knowledge so Absolutely. You know, the, the gospel that Jesus was preaching, just do a word search, go, go into your New Testament and do a word search on the word gospel. You'll find that almost every time that it uses the word gospel, it's part of a phrase. It didn't say that Jesus was teaching the gospel. It says that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And this is a little different than the modern Christian idea of the gospel of salvation. Uh, it doesn't mean salvation is not included. 
uh, salvation is one of the many facets of the diamond of the gospel of the kingdom. It's a part of it, obviously, but um, to to take a three-dimensional diamond with like 93 facets, with salvation being one of the facets on this gospel of the kingdom, if, if you reduce it all the way down to the gospel of the kingdom, you now have a one-dimensional kind of mirror. You don't understand that this is a three-dimensional massive diamond. You're just looking at one little piece. You're just staring headlong into one piece of it. And what's interesting to me is that the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus's own analogy, Jesus's own parable, one of the things that he likens the gospel of the kingdom onto is a treasure buried in a field. And I just want to bring this into modern vernacular and into the conversation that we're having now. If all we think about is some guy who lived hundreds of years ago who sold a little worthless piece of property so he could buy a field because he knew that there was a box buried in the field with some you know, coins in it, and he, he'd be richer than, you know, he was before he sold the house, right? What What's actually going on there, if you flesh out the analogy, is he sold everything he owned to buy the, the field. To everyone else's eyes, the field was just a bunch of dead grass. It wasn't it wasn't capable of harvesting any food or producing anything. There was of no value. It was just this field. They didn't understand that that field could be mined for things that the eye couldn't see. This man, in faith, sold every single thing that he had because he knew that there would eventually be a payoff when he found that treasure buried somewhere on that land, even if it took him the rest of his life to dig and find it. And so the comparison there is most people, most human beings, and even a lot of Christians, they're not willing to give up all that they own. Their rights, their freedoms, their free will. I can do whatever I want because there's grace and God will forgive me. So I can coddle this hidden pornography addiction and I can not worry about the gossip and I can get drunk every night and, and all this. I, I can do whatever I want because there's grace. They're not willing to sell all that they own because they don't believe that the treasure buried in the field will be worth more than what they gave up. This is why it's faith. This is why the kingdom of God comes to those with faith. So if you believe that some virtual world being promised to you through modern technology and science and through new age religion, if you believe that some virtual world where some aspect of your conscience is enjoying things while you're sitting doped up in a chair with, with doctors making sure your heart rate doesn't explode. Okay, if that is your, if that is the epitome of the greatest orgasmic experience you can have on planet Earth, somehow thinking that the kingdom of heaven which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind, no thought has entered into the mind of a man what has, is awaiting those who, who enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the disconnect. What, what Satan is offering people is a virtual reality where you are in an enhanced dream world, experiencing something in your mind, as opposed to heaven, which is for eternity, and you are in a physical resurrected body, experiencing those things real time in the real world, 
And unlike a DMT drip that ends in, in a day or a week, uh, this is for eternity. Pleasures forevermore. It is right hand or pleasure forevermore. And it blows my mind that the most uneventful, boring moment we will experience in heaven is the moment we arrive. Because the, there is no entropy in heaven and our joy will increase moment by moment. That means that the most boring moment we ever experience in heaven will be the moment we arrive. That is the reality reality uh, that Jesus's kingdom is offering. So you can take virtual reality over that if you don't have enough guts to sell everything you have, because there might be something better in that field, then eat, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And, and so timely, you know, it's so timely and we have to, yeah, we have to, we have to reach out and say, God, we need you. Not I can do that all on my own. I can fix this. I can fix that. Yeah. We have all these self-love, self-help books, all these different things that are, that are helping us to be better at self. And, um, you know, the message of Jesus is surrender. And, and, you know, I, I really appreciate you bringing up the kingdom because the kingdom is, uh, the, the goal, right? That was, that was Jesus's goal was to bring the kingdom here, heaven and earth combined again, which is, which is the whole plan from the beginning and, and to be able to have that, um, and, and, have it tangible is hard for us to see in our mind because we can see these things that are in front of us right now. And we can, you know, in virtual reality, you can grab hold of things and you can do things and you can see things, but it's that, it's that part of faith that is the unknown that uh, keeps us from selling everything that we have and, and, and giving in and surrendering completely. And so I, I so appreciate you bringing that up because the kingdom has been a long studied uh, thing of mine. I, I really, I really missed it in church when I was growing up. I'm like, what's this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? Because I didn't really hear that. And I grew up in the church and, and the, and Kristen and Bethany grew up in the church and there was, it was salvational. It was all about salvation, you know, praying the sinner's prayer, which isn't in the Bible and all of those things. And really the heart of the matter is, is the kingdom. And we should be, you know, for those listeners that haven't done a deep dive study on the kingdom, we encourage you all to do that because that's what Jesus was talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, salvation, as you stated, was a, a big portion of that, um, but it wasn't all of it. Right. And so and, yeah. we, need to, we need to dig in. It, you know, it's interesting how sleep and dreams corresponds with all of this talk about uh, the kingdom and transhumanism. Like, it is all related. You know, I always tell people um, so many of the, the, the podcasts I do, uh, people are like, well, it wasn't enough about sleep paralysis. So it's like, you don't understand all the tentacles that are attached to, to this and how they yeah. all interrelate. Mm -hmm. Because what's interesting is sleep is always sort of metaphorically connected to death. Uh, mm -hmm. And waking is metaphorically connected to 
resurrection or rebirth. And we see this even in the language of Jesus. She's not dead, but only asleep. You know, there, it's very similar. And I think that, uh, you know, in Romans, when it says all men are without excuse because nature makes it obvious to them of, of everything that they need to know about the reality of, of heaven and hell and all this. And so I believe that sleep, like, why do we have to sleep? And why is it so integral? And why do we fall into physical and mental disrepair when we don't get enough of it? Or if there's some sort of a sleep uh, deprivation or whatnot. I just believe that sleep and the reason God baked it into our physiology is it's one of the reasons why we will be without excuse. Yes. Because every morning when we wake up, we all experience momentarily or for quite a while that disappointment upon mm. waking. A lot of us, when we wake up, we are confused. Where am I? Wait, what, what time is it? What day is it? Is it a work day? We're, we, we experience a, a fog, a brain fog. We're confused. We, we are often dreading getting up. Oh, I've got to get dressed. I got to rush our traffic. Oh, my boss is going to yell at me today. Oh, I have an annual review. Ugh, you know, uh, and, and so what do we do? We need our coffee, right? We've got to shake ourselves out as quickly as we can, whether it's a cold shower or that cup of coffee. We want to shake ourselves out of that waking brain fog as fast as we can because we're uncomfortable with it. And this is a little daily reminder every day of our life. You know, if you live till you're 80, multiply that, you know, times the number of days each year. That was how many thousands of opportunities you had because you got a glimmer of what it is going to feel like uh, when, when you ultimately wake from the dead one day and you're in that fog and you're going to be standing before the king. And I just think that the reason why dreams and waking up is such a common experience for human beings is something they dread. Like how many people don't like going to sleep because it, they either don't want the nightmares or they don't want to, they want more waking time to get things done. Uh, from the time you're a little kid, it's almost programmed into you. They scream and cry and start getting behavioral at bedtime, why do we resist this going to sleep? And why are we so seemingly miserable the first moments upon waking? There is a, a, a glimmer in this. It's being built into us. Every day we're getting a metaphor. We're getting a taste. We're getting a warning of the ultimate day when we go to sleep and we wake up. And so uh, when, when we're on the other side of that waking there isn't a cold shower or a cup of coffee in the world that is going to bring us out of that stupor or that brain fog if we don't have Jesus Christ. And so I, I just challenge people um, to think less self-centeredly. And I don't mean that like arrogantly. I just mean thinking more in terms of the eternal rather than the temporal. When we go to sleep, when we don't want to go to sleep, uh, when when we dream, when we evaluate what we dream, when we wake up, these are all opportunities to tune into uh, some perhaps latent ideas that we have about that ultimate sleep and that ultimate waking up. So I, I don't know if that's making any sense or if it's just too out there, but 
I, I think that there's a reason why sleep is being targeted in these end times as a part of the end times deception. I, I don't think it's just, um, oh, we're having bad dreams. We ate spaghetti before we went to bed or, oh, you messed with the Ouija board. So you opened a door and the demons are going to get you. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's an opportune time of the day, but um, there is a reason why sleep and dreams is a necessary part of this agenda for them to carry forward. Yes. Yeah. And it's so clear. I mean, Kristen hates waking up in the morning. I mean, trying to get her to get out of bed in the morning, it's rough, but, uh, Vicki, we're so, uh, blessed to have you. And, uh, we're so thankful that you are taking the time to, to speak with people about, um, this message and thank you for writing your book and all of your books that you've written, where can the people find you? Um, you're on the internet. I know you have a website. What's your website? Yep. So my website is Vicki Joy Anderson. It's Vicki with an I. Anderson is S-O-N. VickiJoyAnderson.com. And all of my other books you can find on my website, but they only come out at night, is available exclusively on LAMarzuli.net. It's being distributed through his publisher and his website. Uh, you can contact me through my website. Uh, there's a place to, to send messages. Or you can also contact me on uh, Instagram at, uh, is it Vicky Joy Author? I think it's Vicky Joy Author. Yes, that's right. Um, well, thank you so much again for, for taking the time. Um, you know, here on this podcast, we talk about all of the fringy things out there. And there's nothing more fringy than, uh, you know, talking about God. And we love doing that. And we love bringing it to the forefront of people's minds, whether they like it or not. If you're going to listen to this podcast, you're going to get a dose of Jesus. And yes. so anyway, with that, um, we just want to say have a great rest of your day and thanks again for coming on we are so pleased uh, that you made the time and uh, we hopefully will look forward to talking to you again soon that would be fantastic thank you so much for having me on and i love what you said about the ultimate fringe the ultimate supernatural being jesus christ hey if your bible's boring you are reading it wrong that's exactly right amen <laughs> Well, with that, we leave you guys with uh, another fringy topic today, and uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, so with that, we'll talk to you on the next one.